Welcome to another special Plague Time, I'm at Home edition of Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. The daughter of a Presbyterian minister and a school teacher, Condoleezza Rice grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. She received her undergraduate degree from the University of Denver, her master's degree from Notre Dame, and her doctorate again from the University of Denver. She has served in many positions in academia and government, including, as I mentioned just a moment ago, as provost of Stanford and as Secretary of State. And as of September 1st, Secretary Rice has become the new director of the Hoover Institution, the Public Policy Center at Stanford. Condi Rice, welcome. Thank you, Peter. Great to be with you. Condi, the first question is more or less mandatory. You and I have known each other for a number of years. And if I may say so, until September 1st, you had a wonderful life. You taught at Stanford, you participated in a consulting company and you gave speeches and you still had time to practice piano and play golf. And now you have taken on a job that will involve endless fundraising, countless administrative tasks, attempting to lead some 200 fellows of the Hoover Institute. I, I love our colleagues, I really do love them, but they're not all easy people. So the first question again is mandatory. Why have you done this? Well, Peter, maybe I should have had my head examined. You, you, you left out that I also, of course, I had a chance to be on the college football playoff committee and uh, to chair a commission on basketball. Yes, life was very good. But in the final analysis, um, I had to ask myself, do I like where we are right now as a country and as a world? And I had to say no. I think we have challenges and problems that are piling up. Uh, that are challenging our values, uh, challenging our freedoms, uh, challenging our prosperity, and most importantly, challenging the sense of Americans in particular that uh, equal opportunity and equal access are there for them. And um, those challenges to the governance of, of free peoples uh, suggest to me that we need really good answers to a lot of the problems that we're facing we need them to be based on solid and sound research, new ideas that are fully explored, uh, explored where the data takes us. And uh, I thought there's no better place to do that than the Hoover Institution, a place that has a very solid foundation in the notion that uh, free peoples, uh, free markets, uh, prosperity and peace are to be sought going all the way back to the wishes of uh, Herbert Hoover himself. And so, if I can help uh, lead and uh, in fact, really uh, bring our, our colleagues together around that joint uh, goal, that set of, of responsibilities, then it seemed a good time to do it. Honey, let's, we'll come to Hoover in a moment. Let's take just a moment to explain, explain your thinking actually on public policy centers, on think tanks. There are over 5,000 colleges and universities in the country, far lower number of think tanks, far lower, but not, not insignificant. Hoover, Brookings, Heritage, the American Enterprise Institute, Cato, and so forth. What are think tanks for? What distinguishes them from the usual or the, from the rest of the academic world? Well, think tanks, um, I believe, um, have to have one thing that is, is there in the academic world, and that is grounding in uh, research that is driven by research questions, which are then answered by data and where the data takes you wherever it will. In other words, uh, you're really seeking in a sense, the truth uh, from the questions that you ask. 
but they also have to be uh, places that want to have an impact on policy, uh, an impact on outcomes, an impact on the thinking of leaders and uh, those who are actually responsible for calling out and carrying out policy. And what distinguishes Hoover is that it has two other really uh, unique features. One is it sits uh, at a great university, one of the really leading universities, and a leading university in uh, the new technologies and the innovation and technological frontiers of the world. And it is, uh, at the opposite, a, a library and an archive. And so it's committed to its history. It's committed to uh, those historical documents and historical experiences that inform uh, the way that we think about policy. So to my mind, Hoover is kind of the complete package. Um, it is a think tank where we care about policy, where we do uh, fundamental research, but it is also a place uh, that can draw on those uh, documents and lessons of history, and it can do it in an environment of a great and broad university. You've spoken of um, several areas of emphasis or organizing questions, and however, you're still very new in the job, so you haven't spoken about them much. So I'd, I'd like to ask questions that have the virtue of being real questions. I really don't quite know how you're going to answer these questions. So slap me around if I'm asking bad questions or, uh, you know, I had Milton Friedman on this show and he treated me like a very slow graduate student. He said, no, that's not the interest. He, he rewrote the questions before answering them. Feel free. You've One of those areas of uh, kind of organizing question, if that's the right way to put the way you're thinking about these, you have talked about the challenges or the failures, and this is the term you're using, of late-stage capitalism. So, of course, I look up that up, and it wasn't used by Marx, but it is associated with the left, and here's a definition that I found online. Late-stage capitalism is a popular phrase that describes the hypocrisy and absurdities of capitalism as it digs its own grave. Right. Now, something tells me you don't really expect or want free markets to dig their own graves. So how are you using this phrase? I'm using this phrase as a challenge to us all to be provocative in our thinking, to be wide ranging in our thinking about how we get at the core of anything that's ailing what I consider to be the greatest economic system that humankind has ever created. And that is the belief that uh, if people are incented for their labor, if they uh, mobilize resources smartly and capital smartly, uh, everybody will be better off. I believe in free markets. I believe in free enterprise. I believe in the private sector. Uh, I believe in small government uh, to make sure that the private sector is free to the degree that it uh, can be to, to do all of those things. But I recognize too that those who don't believe in that are making some very serious charges about where capitalism is failing. And if we just say, oh, no, 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 you don't understand, we're actually growing the economy, then people will say, well, what about all of those who've been left out? And I'll tell you what happens, uh, Peter, when you're not provocative enough in your own thinking about your assumptions about what is right, is you get lazy. And if you get lazy, you open the ground to those who would 
dig your grave. And so my view is that unless we have answers to these questions, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of them, um, we in fact are not doing our jobs as responsible stewards of uh, the best economic system that humankind has ever uh, created. Um, you know, I, of course, studied the Soviet Union, so I am not unaware of where late stage capitalism comes from. In fact, uh, if you really look hard, uh, it is a phrase that Lenin liked to use. Oh, Lenin used Lenin it. Lenin used it. And so I looked at Marx. I was looking in the wrong yeah, place. Yeah, looking in the All wrong right. place. And so, so I am a slow student. And so, um, you know, I'm a specialist on the Soviet Union. I understand the critiques. But I, I always say to people who say, well, how about socialism? I say, well, look, the only time that from each according to his talents to each according to his needs. The only time that's worked is at gunpoint. Uh, it's actually not an incentive for people to, uh, to create, to innovate, uh, to produce. Uh, what it is is a recipe for authoritarianism and totalitarianism. So that's what it's led to. So what is our answer, however, to the following? Capitalism is inherently unequal because markets will reward some things and not others. We accept that. Uh, you and I don't get angry because um, Yo-Yo Ma uh, makes more uh, money playing the cello than I would have made playing the piano. It's inequality of talent. With my sports friends, I use the example that I don't get mad that LeBron James makes more money than I would uh, playing basketball because it's inequality of talent. But if it's inequality of access and inequality of opportunity, now we have the politics of jealousy. Mm -hmm. And capitalism cannot survive when you have the politics of jealousy. Because now what it says is, I'm not getting a fair shake, and therefore I'm going to take what is yours and redistribute in a way that is, quote, equal, because I can't trust your system to do it. Does that sound familiar right. in the environment in which we live uh, today? Does it sound familiar for people to say, uh, I'm going to make sure that those people pay their fair share? Uh, as if the hard work that people have put in uh, ought to simply be put into a kind of generalized pool where some government official gets to decide how it's going to be redistributed. So the reason that I think it's important that we take this on frontally is that we have now descended into the politics of jealousy. I'll, I'll tell you one little story mm -hmm. uh, about this. So when Gorbachev met with George H.W. Bush for the first time, uh, President Bush was trying to explain uh, capitalism. And he said something like, well, you see, uh, somebody who's seeking uh, benefit for himself to get wealthy himself can actually make it better for all of society by creating jobs. And, and Gorbachev wasn't buying it, right? He was just, his eyes were glazed over. I could see it. And finally, he said, George, George, let me tell you why capitalism will never work in Russia, in the Soviet Union. He said, we have this parable. A peasant finds Aladdin's lamp. Jeannie comes out and says, what can I do for you? The peasant says, look at my neighbor. He has a wonderful harvest. His wife is lovely and his children are good to him. Look at me. My harvest is lousy. My children hate me. My wife has left me. And the genie says, so you would like me to make you like him? He says, no, no, I want you to make him like me. That's the politics of jealousy. 
And so you don't reward hard work and you don't reward risk-taking. What you do is say there has to be a quality of outcome. And that's the struggle that we're in today. So if you, I'm, uh, uh, on the spectrum of new, well, we have free markets, enormous work and free, in some ways decisive work by Hoover Fellows and Nobel Prize winners, Milton Friedman, George Stigler, Gary Becker. And I found this quotation by another Hoover Fellow who was a Nobel Prize winner, Friedrich Hayek. If old truths are to retain their hold on men's minds, they need to be restated in language and concepts of successive generations. No statement of an ideal can be complete. It must be adapted to a given climate of opinion. So on the one hand, there's this notion, which I get completely, of restating for contemporary, for our time, for our generation and the language that students can understand, the issues that we care about, restating what, we, what has already been demonstrated. But then there's also the question of actually doing new work on specific areas and you're not going to be satisfied with just restatement, I don't guess. So for example, education, what, do, do you have specific, um, I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to get you, try to get you ahead of yourself, you're still settling into the job, but are there specific questions within this provocative Leninist framework, framing of late stage capitalism that you'd like to see addressed? Yes. By the way, a lot of people have not liked late stage capitalism. So I'm going to call it mature. <laughs> no, I like it now. Now I'm that I know what I'm going to call it mature it. capitalism and say right, mature right. capitalism has changes as uh, changes it needs to make. I think that uh, the way that you deal with the politics of jealousy is you look hard at what is the social contract underlying the uh, the economic system. We know that uh, you get great macro effects. You get growth. Uh, we've had just before this pandemic. Uh, record low unemployment, uh, you know, job creation, innovation. There are a lot of great things that we can point to. But the social contract, which says, all right, everybody's going to get an equal chance at the benefits of that. There we have a problem. And what is that problem? I would say that one of the biggest interventions that we've always used is a high quality education for every child so that people can uh, fully benefit. Now, today, I can look at your zip code, and I can tell in the public education system from your zip code whether you're likely to get a high-quality education. And we have wonderful fellows at uh, Hoover, uh, people like Mackie Raymond and uh, Eric Hanischek and, of course, um, uh, Carolyn Hoxby, who are looking at this system and saying, what about the policies that we've adopted are making that high quality education harder and harder for the poorest of kids to attain. Now, I personally have done a lot of work on education reform because as a, high, as a higher ed person, I'm really interested in the product that I get. I'm interested in the question of can a quote elite university like Stanford actually be accessible for a kid who grew up poor with parents who couldn't speak English? It's an important societal question. We know that what we want it to be is that you're not trapped in your class, that generations do move forward. Now, if I look at the K-12 education system today, I have to say that it's an opt-out system. What do I mean? If you are of means, 
you will move to a district where the schools are good and the houses are expensive. Palo Alto, Fairfax County, Virginia, Hoover, Alabama, outside of Birmingham, where my family lives. Now, if you're really, really wealthy, maybe you'll send your kid to private school. So who's stuck and trapped in, in failing public schools, neighborhood schools, poor kids, a lot of them minority kids. And yet we have the people who need the education most, people who need the education most, kids who need the education most. And by the way, I know sometimes there are dysfunctional parents who are poor, but sometimes these parents are just poor and they right. need better choices. Right. So I say to myself, why would anyone be against charter schools? Not that all charters are good, but a lot of them are. Why would anyone be against choice for parents? Why would anyone be against vouchers? And then I hear, well, those will destroy the public schools. And I say, okay, if you want to say that, and you want to write that editorial in the Washington Post, be my guest, but then send your kid to school in Anacostia. Don't send your kid to Sidwell Friends and write that editorial. And so the hypocrisy of that position needs to be exposed in order to get at this question of why is the education system failing the poorest of our kids? And contributing to this sense that the social contract isn't supporting the upward mobility that we were once accustomed to. Condi, another of those organizing questions you've discussed is America's place in the world today. You're a Russian expert. Of course, you're interested in Russia and Europe. I've heard you discuss the importance of doing work on a rising India. But of course, the dominant foreign policy issue is China. Let me give you a quotation from a late colleague of ours, Henry Rowan, Hoover Fellow. This is, this is Harry Rowan writing in 1996. When will China become a democracy? The answer is around the year 2015. This prediction is based on China's uh, steady and impressive growth, which in turn fits the pattern of the way in which freedom has grown in Asia and elsewhere in the world, close quote. Now, Harry Rowan was not only a good man, but a brilliant man. And economic growth, it was plausible to argue that economic growth was supposed to lead to democracy in China, just as it had in Taiwan and Korea. And I, I, was, in, I was a kid speechwriter in the Reagan White House. We believed it then. For a quarter of a century and longer, the fundamental hope has been, expectation has been, that as China got richer, China would become freer. And instead, in President Xi, China has a new emperor. What went wrong? Let me just say, Peter, China has not faced a reckoning about the essential contradiction between economic well-being and political repression yet. Uh, we don't know. Maybe it never will, but I will not yet concede that they will not eventually have to deal with that contradiction. And you, if you don't think they think they are trying to deal with that contradiction, look at the way that she is behaving. Uh, you're getting even more frantic attempts to control the message. You're getting even more frantic attempts to use uh, the internet and social media as a means of uh, political control, actual social credits to people uh, for doing the right things on the internet. And if you do the wrong things, then you don't get points toward a ticket to get on a train to go to work. 
Uh, this is not a confident leadership. This is perhaps a leadership that knows that there are essential contradictions in that system. If you look at what's happening mm. with Hong Kong, for instance, so the Chinese brutal, brutal, mm. brutal because uh, it, it, the problem with authoritarians is that they know there's no peaceful way to change power. Right? Whatever we want to say about whatever messy democracy looks like, uh, we can change power peacefully, and we have a prescribed way to do that. Now, if you're an authoritarian, you really don't have a prescribed way to do that, and so you're always fearful of your people. It becomes a spiral of ever greater repression because you're more and more fearful, and eventually something has to give. And so I would not yet rule out the possibility that the liberalization of Chinese politics, I didn't say the democratization, but the liberalization of mm -hmm. Chinese politics is going to have to take place. Uh, I remember Hu Jintao telling us when he was president that, and he, he told us this, that in one year they'd had 186,000 riots, 186,000. And uh, it was that some party hack out in a province uh, took somebody's land, expropriated somebody's land, a peasant's land. They didn't have a system of courts to which they could appeal. So he and his friends riot. The Chinese are looking at things like whether or not they need a court system that could be more neutral, where people might actually believe they could win mm -hmm. against the government. Now you start to see the nose under the tent, if you will, the camel's nose under the tent of expectations about property rights. So, I just think maybe it will never happen, but I would not be surprised if the Xi experiment, his experiment with greater repression, with uh, greater ideological purity, uh, with going back to something that looks like the little red book, with going back to something that looks like red ballet, even the arts are being affected. Yes. Uh, this is to me uh, a sign that they're actually worried about what you just, mm. just said. So let me... Um... Let me go at this question a slightly different way. February 1946, Treasury Department asks a couple of questions of the embassy in Moscow. And a diplomat named George, you know exactly where this is going, yet a diplomat named George Kennan produces a 5,000 word document, which has since been known as the Long Telegram. <clears throat> and it is an astonishing document. He describes, it goes into the history of Russia, the internal contradictions of communism, and he lays out in this telegram the fundamentals of containment, which would remain the essential framework for American foreign policy for the next 45 years until the Soviet Union collapsed. Right. There has been no long telegram about China. And what strikes me, you know all of this far better than I do, but what strikes me is that Kennan was able to draw upon a body of scholarly work in which he and other diplomats were steeped. People, people had of course been studying Russia for a long time, but they'd been studying the Bolshevik, they'd been studying Russian communism since the Bolshevik revolution. So how, what can Hoover do to establish the groundwork so that you or one of our colleagues, somebody can write the long telegram, somebody can help this country establish an intellectual framework for this staggering challenge of facing a rising country of 1.3 billion people. What can Hoover do? Yes, well, we could, we could do worse than uh, 
some of what we did in response to Kennan. Because if you think about uh, great scholars like Robert Conquest, yes, what did Robert Conquest do? He told the truth about yes, what did. was going on in the yes, Soviet Union. He and he was excoriated, Peter, by uh, the more liberal Soviet ecological community that said, no, he has to be way off with his numbers about how many people were purged. It turns out his estimates were low about how many people were purged. And so uh, one of the things that I would like to see uh, Hoover do is to be uh, true to our heritage of really uh, supporting the best history mm. on these places that can really inform. And by the way, we have, I mentioned it at the beginning, we're an archive. Yes. We have great historical materials. We have people who want to put their papers with us because they know they will be preserved and the truth can be told from them. So let's start by really bringing the best young historians of China, of, of places that are unlike China, like India. And, and frankly, history is being practiced in the academy in a way that's not really very inspiring any longer. It's become ever smaller, narrower questions about history. Read dissertations these days, read a lot of the books. You know, when I was a young faculty member, I remember sitting at a, at a first faculty meeting with uh, Gabriel Allman and who'd written The Civic Culture and Seymour Martin Lipset, a political man. And I mean, these big questions. We have historians who can ask big questions. We have some of them now, Neil Ferguson and and Russ Berman and, uh, and Victor David Hansen, but we want to attract more who will ask big questions. And on China, let's help to get the history straight. Let's be, we already a place where I think people will put their papers to protect them. Let's do more of that. Secondly, let's, from the long telegram, let's get right the couple of things that Kennan said that are applicable today. He said, first of all, until they have to turn to deal with their internal contradictions, deny them the course of easy expansion. We can do that with our military power. We can do that with our allies. One of the things that we have going for us that China does not have is we have friends and allies. China has clients. We have friends and allies. Mm. Uh, mm. Countries like India, the world's largest democracy and a democracy that is remarkable where people who don't speak the same language, don't worship the same God have consequential elections every few years and turn over government peacefully. So let's learn the lessons of that and study those things. And finally, something that one of our fellows is leading, um, Larry Diamond leading projects on, on Chinese sharp power. One of the things we know that the Chinese are doing that the Soviets tried to do and maybe did it more clumsily is they're trying to create a different narrative. They're interfering in elections. They're, they're uh, creating a, a falsehoods about us and about uh, what we do. Uh, people always hearken back to Radio Free Europe and Voice of America. Right. You know, Voice of America and Radio Free Europe were not propaganda arms of the United States government. They just told the truth. They just told the truth. And so as we construct a way of thinking about China, let's tell the truth about them and let's tell the truth about us. What has made us great is not to be top down in innovation, but to have multiple sources of innovation. What's made us great is not to be afraid of free uh, discourse and, uh, and, and ideas. And so I think the long telegrams out there waiting to be written, Hoover's doing a lot to put its pieces together. Conti on history, that was also 
an emphasis on history is something you've mentioned as a particular concern of yours. I, I had a note here. I wanted to ask you a question. I'm going to ask it, but I had a note to myself that you might challenge the premise. But I think you've indicated just now that you agree with the premise. Well, we'll see. And so here's the premise. It's my premise. You may disassociate yourself from it right away if you want to. But my premise is, is that history as practiced in major universities has become grievance studies. It's been become captured by ideological concerns. The history departments used to be above all the place where you went to seek to understand. Go someplace else to devise action or reform. But first, history, history departments used to insist, not necessarily explicitly, but the way to approach history was with humility. The first thing you did was try to understand what happened. All right. So there's an ideological capture. I'm continuing with my premise. And there's also, for, some, for reasons I have to admit I don't understand, narrative history the kind of history that Bob Conquest wrote, the kind of history that Norman Neymark wrote in his, his magisterial works on Eastern Europe. For one reason or another, that isn't being done in history departments, but that is what Neil Ferguson does. And that is what Victor Davis Hanson does. So that's my premise. And my question is this, is there some way in which you look at the Hoover Institution almost as a monastery during the dark ages where we take it on ourselves, if others won't do it, the Hoover Institution will still take seriously the task of passing on our inheritance. Uh, absolutely, I do agree with your premise, uh, both that uh, there's a heavy ideological blanket over history these days, uh, but some of it came for the right reasons. That certain histories of certain peoples had been written out of the right. narrative, of the the dominant narrative, and certainly that needed to be addressed. But uh, when it becomes uh, a an ever smaller set of issues uh, that are just devoted to trying to create a specific narrative about a very specific, very small uh, grouping of people or very uh, very fleeting moment in history, now we've we've got a problem. And um, so, yes, I think we will be a place that people who want to do big history will feel comfortable. Um, Neil and uh, his colleagues, uh, and he has colleagues from all over the country. Uh, my co-author, Philip Zellico at the University of Virginia is one of the participants in an applied history project that is going on at Hoover. How do we think about the lessons of history and sensibly apply them rather than just as people often do when they're policymakers, just kind of grabbing at whether whatever historical analogy seems to suit your cause at the moment. So how do we think about that in a systematic way? And there's another reason. Um, again, we are an archive. I really hope that we can uh, make it more accessible to students. And I'll tell you why. I, I taught an American foreign policy class, 25 kids. I had 160 applications. The, the best and the brightest in majors like economics and history and international relations. And, and uh, one day I said, and you know, when we had Khalid Sheikh Mohammed under lock and key after 9-11, it would have been like having Rommel under lock and key from, uh, during World War II. And I got 25 blank stares. Who was Rommel? 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 Rommel. Who's he? Who's right. he? And so it's not just for policymakers and to be true to the history and to understand how we got to where we are. It's not just to apply the history better. Uh, 
human beings have been in some of these situations before. How do we learn from that? But it's also someone has to preserve the history for our students because they're no longer learning it. Condi, the, the last of these organizing questions that I, I think we'll have time to discuss, <clears throat> technology and governance. And uh, here I don't have a, a big premise to pronounce. This is the, the one of the organizing questions I've heard you discuss that I myself grasp the least. So here's what I think I understand. And, and the point of departure here is Bill Gates, who commented not long ago, Bill Gates of all people, that social media was a poisoned chalice. That was the phrase he used. So we expected social media to bring us together and instead it's created all kinds of new divisions. Spend, spend five minutes on Twitter if you can. Um, we hope for a burst of creativity. We got video games. We wanted innovation and, and well, as Peter Thiel famously put it, we were promised flying cars and we got 140 characters. So I think I understand that frustration, but what are your hopes here? What, what can the Hoover Institution do to restore the promise of tech? Is that the, is that the right question for me to be asking you? Yes, it's, it's the right question. I mean, first of all, look at where we sit. We were talking about what's unique about the Hoover Institution. Yes, of course. Uh, we sit in the Silicon Valley, surrounded by, uh, by technology and innovation. And what I find uh, here is that people here kind of take for granted that technology is good. Well, in fact, technology is neutral. Mm -hmm. And how it's applied, how it affects institutions, how it affects people's lives, that's, that's what makes it good or bad. And, and frankly, human beings have been historically a lot better at the knowledge part than the wisdom part. We've uh, just give you one example, of course, uh, the same splitting of the atom that allowed us to turn on uh, the lights from civil nuclear power or to do medical isotopes gave us the atom bomb. So we are pretty good at discovering things. We're not always very good at knowing their, uh, their effects and being able to mitigate the bad and uh, to uh, amplify the good. So uh, whether it is the gene uh, splicing in CRISPR out through social media uh, out through drones, which are changing the nature and the calculations of warfare, uh, to uh, AI, which uh, we have now a technology that people say actually threaten what it means to be human. I, I'm still waiting for the AI uh, symphony that's going to sound as good as Beethoven, but there are some people who say that's going to happen. And so uh, how our institutions, our 250-year-old institutions, are simply being overrun by these developments. And that's why I've called it technology and governance, not technology and policy. Uh, because first we need to understand how are our institutions going to be responsive? And by the way, it has huge national security implications as well. Uh, you talked about China. I, I've told some of my Chinese friends, I think one of the, the dumbest speeches that Xi Jinping made was to say that China was gonna overtake the United States in AI and quantum computing and frontier technologies because it got our backs up. But let's mm. make sure that it got our backs up in the right way, that it doesn't become, okay, so we need a national strategy. Well, fine, but innovation for us has always been from the multiple sources. So let's not lose that. Uh, we uh, need to be careful that we don't 
assumed that every Chinese student working in a lab is working for the PLA because we want to be open to ideas and to the training of the next generation of a billion four people. So we have a lot of challenges that technology has brought, but we have a lot of opportunities too. You know, the possibilities for better learning for kids in, in undeveloped uh, or uh, underserved communities. Uh, the possibilities, I, I think even about the impact that technology may have on higher education. I frankly think, Peter, universities are whistling past the graveyard on this. Oh, you do? I do, I do. Because I think the, the hybrid learning that we're now seeing uh, some remote, some in the classroom, I think we're going to see more of that. I think it was coming for a long time. If you're in a class with 700 other people or 500 other people, maybe you're better online. off online. Right. Maybe right. you're better off pacing your, uh, your work so that if you didn't understand differential equations the first three times, you can do it a fourth. And so um, I think technology is, it has marvelous possibilities, but it has potential very devastating downsides, and we need to understand how our institutions are going to respond. Condi, if you'll indulge me, a few questions about you. You wrote in the email that you sent to all of us, all of us who work at the Hoover Institution on September 1st, your first day as director, my life and career path have led me to this moment. So a question or two about that path. You grew up figure skating and playing the piano. Those are two pursuits that require hours of practice. And I mean, not just hours of practice to, to master, hours of practice to achieve competence. And then you got a little older and you studied Russian. Russian is a hard language. And here at Stanford, you served as provost. The president of the university gets all the love, all the love from alumni the provost gets stuck with budgets and tenure decisions that have gone sideways and telling people nice work, but no. And so, and now you've taken on this crazy job. So there is something about you that all your life has been drawn to things that are difficult. How come? Well, I do believe that uh, it, it kind of starts with how I grew up and with watching my parents and watching the people around them. Um, if, if you grew up in segregated Birmingham, Alabama, when I did, there was hope on the horizon. Uh, Rosa Parks had already refused to sit in the back of the bus and uh, Brown versus the Board of Education had already uh, taken place. And uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower had insisted on the integration of uh, Little Rock. If you grew up in Birmingham when my parents did, or when my grandparents did, I don't know how you got up in the morning and decided that despite the difficulties, you were going to raise a family and educate them and put food on the table and go to church and make the world better. And that's what they did. And I feel so fortunate to have landed where I am from where I came. I feel so grateful that um, I grew up in an America that was changing in ways that would allow me to reach potential that my parents and mentors and role models saw in me. Uh, that I just don't think I have an option to shrink from hard things. 
I also think that you're better if you're doing hard things. Um, I, I, one of the pieces of uh, advice I give to students when they're starting a major with me or whatever, I'd say, look, uh, all of us love to do the things that we do well and just keep doing them over and over because it's wonderfully uh, affirming that I do that well. But if you never try to do things that are hard for you, then you will never understand and believe that you can overcome things that are hard for you. And so I say, if you love math, do more reading and writing. If you love reading and writing, do more math. Challenge yourself every day and you're going to be better for it. And it's a broader message, I think, for the country as a whole. Uh, just because something is hard doesn't mean that it can't be done. If that had been the case, the United States of America would never have come into being. I mean, we were going to go up against the greatest military power of the time with a third of George Washington's troops down to smallpox any given day. Think that wasn't hard? Uh, people were going to cross the, the Continental Divide in covered wagons. They didn't even know where they were going and they kept going. You think that wasn't hard? You think it wasn't hard to survive a civil war, uh, brother against brother, and come out a better, more perfect union? So Yes, it's really hard. But if you only do that which is laid out for you easily, you're not going to achieve very much at all. And so, um, yeah, I think I like to try to do things that are hard. By the way, I'm not always so good at them. I was not really that good a figure skater, but I kept trying, kept working at it. Sports. You've said you'll watch anything with a score. And you've been known to get up early to work out with Stanford athletes and you've helped this and that different athletic program at Stanford recruit kids. So how is it that someone who has devoted so much of her energies to the life of the mind loves sports? <laughs> what do you get out of it? Oh, well, um, first of all, it's pretty clear when you win and lose, I kind of like that aspect of it. Uh, look, I think uh, taking care of your physical being is very important. Peter, you know I'm very religious, and um, I believe that you were given um, a body and a mind and a soul, a spirit, and that you need to take care of all of them. Um, I also find sports challenging in a way that I find almost nothing else uh, in the quite the same way. Although I will say there are some aspects of the physicality of piano, being able to connect what right. your brain is seeing with what you need to do and what you have to do in sports that I actually find that there's some carryover. Uh, but I just love sports. And, and I really do think that uh, some of it was I'm an only child. Uh, my dad thought I was going to be his all-American linebacker. He had planned for a boy. I was going to be named John. He had bought the football. He got a girl. He decided, oh, well, I guess I'll just have to teach her about sports. And so it was, if you're an only child, you know, it's music with your mother and sports with your father. And so uh, maybe John Rice is as much the reason uh, as anything that I love sports as much as I do. You just mentioned religion. And anybody who reads, especially your book about your early life, Extraordinary Ordinary People, what comes through is that your parents 
the whole, the other thing that comes through is that you were raised by parents, but you were, you really were raised in a community. Yes, absolutely. People knew each other and there were a lot of people looking out for little Condoleezza. Yes. They believed in education, boy, did they, but they were also people of faith. Yes. Now the whole world knows what you've done with regard to education, but if I, how do you, what is the role of faith in your life and for a director of the Hoover Institution, I, I, I almost want to say, how much are we allowed to talk about faith in this current environment? Do you see the question? I do. I absolutely do. Uh, first of all, faith is integral to who I am. I, I almost it's, it's so integral that it's even hard for me to step outside and say how it affects me. I think it's, mm. it's there all the time. Um, and you know, it's been there for me in really hard times, like the loss of, loss of my parents. Uh, I remember after 9-11, uh, we went up to Camp David. I was so grateful that Friday night that I was in a community of faith. John Ashcroft, uh, the attorney general at the time, actually plays gospel piano. Um, oh, really? I, I play Brahms. He plays gospel piano. So he played and we, we sang music. And it was, it was good to know that there were people who believed that uh, there was uh, a higher being on whom you could call. I my, my favorite phrase is always the peace that passes understanding, that somehow uh, there are times when your, your intellect isn't enough and you have to look someplace else. And so um, faith is just integral to who I am. I grew up that way. And I, I tell people I'm unapologetic about it. Um, I'm not telling other people that they have to be religious or have faith, but I'm going to tell you that I am because you won't know me unless you know that about me. Now, in terms of the academy, I really hope that we get to the point one day when uh, we can uh, understand and be willing to look at religion, both as a factor in human development and as a factor in human history. Uh, I had one experience with this at one point. I was, um, when I was provost, I uh, oversaw a two-year committee to reform the humanities requirement. Two-year committee, okay? Only an academic institution has two-year committees. But um, this was after we'd been through the whole Western culture debate, Western civilization debate, and, and we'd gotten this new, but no, our students didn't really like the way the humanities requirement was set up. So in this committee, two things happened that said to me, we're a little off base in the academy. One was that you had to assign a book by a woman of color. Fine. I said, does my book on German unification qualify? Right? I'm a woman of color. That's a dirty question. It turned out that <laughs> I don't think it had occurred to people that a woman of color might not actually write about women of color. And so wow. That, wow. Was, that was a bit of a light going on for me. A second one was uh, we, we had to address race, gender, and class in each of the sessions. And I said, well, what about religion? Uh, religion has, for good and for bad, had as much, if not more, effect on how human history has unfolded. So what about religion? Uh, suddenly people were willing to drop the others then, rather than include religion. So this um, allergy mm. to talking about uh, this factor in human development uh, we've got to find a way to get over it because spirituality, uh, which is the kind of academic way of saying religion, 
does matter to human beings and how they develop. And so I would hope that at some point, perhaps we can even have that conversation and maybe Hoover can help lead it. Connie, if I may, you're busy. You've got a big job. I've been saying that. Last question then. This is going to take a moment or two to set up, <clears throat> but if you'll be, bear with me. Two quotations. Quotation one, Condoleezza Rice, in her book, Extraordinary Ordinary People. The racial hatred in Alabama found full expression on September 15, 1963, when a bomb at 16th Street Baptist Church killed four little girls who were on their way to Sunday school. Services hadn't yet begun at Westminster, that's Westminster Presbyterian, where your father was the minister, but I was there with my mother as she warmed up on the organ. All of a sudden, there was a thud and a shudder. The distance between the two churches is about two miles, but it felt like the trouble was next door. Quotation two, Herbert Hoover, in his 1959 statement to the Stanford Board of Trustees, which is as close as, as former President Hoover ever got to writing a mission statement for the institution of which you are now the director, quote, this institution supports the Constitution of the United States its Bill of Rights and its method of representative government, close quote. You grew up under Jim Crow. I am talking to someone who can remember the bomb blast from a church bombing that killed four little girls. And yet here you are director of the Hoover Institution, which, who, and Herbert Hoover in founding the institution stated as axiomatic, the fundamental goodness of the United States and its founding institutions. What do you say to people who, 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 reject, who reject that premise? Who say, no, this country was tainted from the outset. What do you say to kids, students? You've been a teacher, you're all your, off and on, but mostly on. You've been a teacher throughout your career. What do you say to students they're starting the college year and then they're clicking over to Facebook and YouTube and they're seeing riots across the country. What does Condoleezza Rice say to explain why she believes the United States of America is still worth the trouble? I say first and foremost that um, human beings are imperfect and um, the founders were imperfect men but they sought to give us institutions that would allow us to move closer and closer to being better, never to be perfected, to mind you, but to being better. And they sought to give us those institutions, and I think they succeeded in that. Now, it is absolutely true, and I've said it myself, we have a birth defect with slavery. And do I wish that uh, John Adams and others who refused to be slave owners had won on this mm. score and we had rejected slavery? Of course. My ancestors suffered as a result. My ancestors are both slave owners and slaves themselves. And so I understand the depth of that wound that was slavery. But what's remarkable to me about this constitution of the United States is that it once counted those slaves as three-fifths of a man in order to make the compromise to create the United States of America. 
And yet it would be that very constitution and its courts and its legislative, its legislatures that people would appeal to, to eventually deliver rights to the descendants of slaves. And so whether it's the great civil rights legislation of the 60s or whether it's the court cases that uh, Thurgood Marshall and others won, like Brown versus the Board of Education and others, the institutions were good enough to make progress on that most awful of wounds, slavery, to make progress toward delivering rights to the descendants of slaves. That is a remarkable story in human history. And that's why I believe these institutions are not just worth preserving, they're worth fighting for, and they're worth using, they're worth accessing, they're worth insisting that they continue to bring that progress. I told people when I would travel abroad, I would say, look, I don't look at the United States through rose-colored glasses. Somebody who grew up in Birmingham can't look at the United States through rose-colored glasses. But I will tell you one thing. When I look around the world and I look at how people govern over difference, the United States knows that we've had a problem with difference and we keep pushing the frontiers to try and get better. And on the day when I stood in front of a portrait of Benjamin Franklin to take the oath of office as secretary of state, taking an oath, by the way, to that very constitution that had once counted our ancestors as one, as three bits of a man. I stood there sworn in by a Jewish woman, Supreme Court Justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was my neighbor. And I remember thinking, Peter, and I've said this several times, what would old Ben have thought of this? <laughs> well, he couldn't have imagined it. Couldn't have imagined it. But it was because people kept believing in the institutions and kept pushing the institutions. As someone said, not asking the United States to be something else, just asking the United States to, say, to be what it says it is. And that's a much stronger ground to go from than if you never had those institutions uh, to use them. And finally, I'll just say that those of us who are fortunate enough to have made the progress that we have, not complete, not enough, but to make the progress that we have, or to those who fought to keep fighting. And uh, so I would say to all of those young people, don't give up. Uh, the United States of America is a pretty remarkable experiment that's still unfolding. Condi, I said that was the last question. I'm going to slip in one more. The Pac-12 canceled this fall season. That means you won't be able to watch Stanford football, Condi. Who do you like in the SEC? <laughs> uh, in the SEC, I, I have to like Alabama, right? Of course, of course. <laughs> Condoleezza Rice, educator, author, diplomat, and now director of the Hoover Institution. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. Great to be with you. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution, and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.